1: Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is another half hour of science on your radio and we have here today myself, Chris, we have Claire and we have Manisha. Welcome to the show, yes. Manisha, what are you telling us about today?
2: Uh, Today I thought I would share some tips from the animal kingdom on something we could all brush up on, attracting a mate. Ooh. Oh. Are there
1: going to be practical hints coming out of this?
2: Yes, practical for humans or? Uh, no, I'll, I'll give, yeah, yeah, you could try it out, see what happens, see if it goes in your favor. You never oh, cool. know.
0: Well, I'm on the other end of that spectrum. Actually, I'm going to be talking about talking about the most hated animal in Australia. Unattractive creatures. Yes, the most hated animal. Yeah. yeah. Mm. What about you, Chris?
1: Me? Well, I'm going to talk about something nice. Um, It was National Science Week recently, and um, myself, one of the things that I did there was I gave a talk at the Astronomy and Light Festival here in Melbourne, and where I spoke about a physicist called Helen Quinn, and I thought, you know, part of my mission, no one would know who Helen Quinn is, so I figure... She's not a Helen Quinn medicine woman? No, that's different... But my mission is to try and tell Australia who she is. So I'm going to be telling, talking about Helen Quinn today. So everyone will know who Helen Quinn, one of Australia's greatest physicists, actually is. Ooh. So, yeah, look forward to that.
2: So, spring is in the air. Love mm. is in the air. Or at least it could be. I was reading up on sexual signals in the animal world, you know, as you, as do, you. do, and thought I would share some of my favorite ones. Now just picture yourself, you're in the zone, you're in your element, you spot that foxy thing across the room. How would you approach them? Do you make eye contact and smile from afar or are you bold enough to approach them and strike up a conversation? Hmm, well if you were a male mannequin bird, a small tropical passerin, then you would do a sliding dancing display Somewhat similar to a moonwalk, if you will. And you'd get all the ladies. And really, who can resist a guy that can dance? Birds are actually a lot of fun to watch. Or, well, videos of birds are a lot of fun to watch. There's a classic example of peacocks displaying their feathers to show how healthy and strong and how lovely they are. But there are other examples, too. If you're a male bowerbird you would collect brightly colored objects, often blue objects, and decorate your nest, hoping that a female would approve and come into your love shack. Bowerbirds are small forest birds and the type of forest ranges. So they nest in rainforest or eucalypt forest or even in shrublands. They actually collect a lot of natural things, but they're also really... Naturally blue things? Yeah, so like, so natural in a way that they find them around. Because I know that a lot of them use like Twine. Oh, yeah. Milk bottle lids? Yeah, milk bottle lids, I guess, from mm. days gone past. They use flowers. Feathers? Feathers, yeah, yeah. Feathers would be pretty common. Leaves. I've seen these bright blue leaves, but I'm not quite sure what leaves they would be attributed to. Um, they use big pens a lot. Mm. They actually do. So you'll see these bowers, um, these little nests on the ground that are just completely covered in big pens. Well, they're
1: pretty cheap, so the birds can
0: just
2: yeah. <laughs> um, get, that Pigeon
1: is that, from the bank.
2: Is that the reason I can never find a
0: pen when I need one? Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly okay, it. that's what I'm going to blame it on.
2: There's actually even, there's a video online um, of a bower bird that's decorated its nest with a $10 note. So... <laughs> the man from Snowy River.
0: That's an
1: expensive nest.
2: Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. There was one that had a $50 note, but the $50 note got taken away pretty quickly and replaced with a $10 note. Um, So there's also hummingbirds, and they're a bit of a daredevil. They're the daredevils of the group. They display how wonderful they are and how wonderful they would be to mate with by thrilling the ladies. And males actually perform this dive dance where they fly up really high and then they dive straight for the ground and they swirl around and do spirals and turns and just about, uh, when he's about to hit the ground, he pulls out of the dive with such grace and ease and it's lovely and the females all swoon and it's <laughs> amazing.
0: <laughs> and then they have to go eat their body weight in nectar very quickly.
2: Basically, yeah. yeah. So I guess they would get like this sugar high and they're doing all of these displays mm. and then they're tired again.
1: One of my favourites is the kakapo, the, the New Zealand flightless parrot. Which um, apparently, supposedly, um, the male builds a. It carves out a crater, essentially, like a big hollow in the ground, uh, and then it sits in the middle and booms. Like it's a really low, loud booming that can travel for miles and miles. Really? Um, yeah, to attract the females. Trouble is that low frequency sounds. <gasps> aren't very good with direction. So basically, he's making this big noise, be hit along my way, away, but the female has no idea where Where it's coming from? Yeah, yeah. These birds are endangered because they don't have very good strategies. I,
2: I wonder how, like... Oh, crazy. You would think oh, well, that things like trucks and not stuff like that. the only would... reason they're endangered. Oh, poor things.
1: No, I've got a few other problems as well.
2: But, like, if their call is so low frequency, you'd wonder how things like trucks or, like, car frequencies would inhibit the... Yeah, possibly. I wonder. I'm going to look into it. Yeah. Mm.
1: No, they're interesting. Look up the Kakapo. Yeah.
2: Kakapo. Penguins. Penguins are really cute. Have you heard about the daily penguins? Mm -hmm. They present a pebble to their female. A single pebble. Just one. So, no, not just a single pebble. So, when I originally heard this story, I heard it as this like romantic story about. Uh They mate for life, and the male find searches the shores for this lovely oh. pebble, the perfect pebble to present to its female mm-hmm. it's like the Engagement penguin equivalent
0: area. of a bunch of flowers and a heart-shaped yeah. box of chocolate, yeah,
2: or something. basically, and then they mate for life. But what actually happens is that they use pebbles to form their nests, so the males will go around and like scour the shores for pebbles to contribute to the nest and oh, then
1: I pushed you one pebble to add to your pile of your nest here Yeah, um, don't now, say I never now, do anything around yeah, <laughs> here
2: there's actually really cute videos online of of penguins stealing pebbles from <gasps> neighbouring nests because they're also lazy so right. they're not going to go the far distance to actually get this new pebble but they're just they just grab it from the other nest and like t- toss it in there right. it's actually really funny so if you have any time to spare just look it up because you see all of these penguins awkwardly running around and being really cheeky and sneaky, and it's good. Outside of the bird world, though, there are some interesting courtship displays. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, if you want to try them out, you can, but I don't know how successful you'll be. You're not recommending it. If you're bold enough to try it out.
1: Come on, uh, come on. What is, what is it? What are, all right, you, so what?
2: male, male hooded seals. I guess this is a courtship display, but they let females know that they are sexually ready by inflating a nasal cavity. And so they have this big pink balloon hanging out in front of their face to uh, display that they are ready, ready to mate. Flatworms. Now, this might be one of my favorite ones. Flatworms are an aquatic invertebrate. They're very simple
1: creatures, aren't they?
2: They are, yeah. And as a lot of aquatic simple invertebrates, they are hermaphroditic. And so when they are courting, two of them will get ready and they have to decide or somehow determine what role they will oh. each take. And so they they battle it out. They oh. have a old-fashioned joust fest. They fence with their penis. And it's... Call It is actually called penis fencing. So the flatworms fence with their penis and then the one that gets stabbed in its skin and thereby inseminated will take up the role of being the female in that pair. <laughs> yep. Um, if if that is your way to do things, maybe you can try some penis jousting. I have a couple more that I think are really funny. Uh, the red-sided garter snake. And this comes from my home country of Canada, which we're amused by simple things. They engage in a group sexual activity, not the Canadians, sorry, the red-sided garter snakes. When the female emerges from hibernation, she releases all of her welcoming come-hither pheromones um, into the lands, and all the males come running or slithering, Mm -hmm. and they get tangled up into a ball with the female wrapped up in the middle, and the males just try to inseminate her. And how many males are we talking about here? It's like it's like a lot, like, it's like
0: Indiana Jones snake pit sort
2: of yeah, situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, in a bowl. and then they're kind <laughs> so of So like
1: when you have a ball of rubber bands. It looks like that. Doesn't
2: <laughs> it? Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. And then the males actually have two penises because they're snakes and they're hemi, hemi, hemi paints. Hemipenes, yeah, is that it? And they, yeah, there's a lot going on there. And um, this is so interesting to the people of Manitoba where this happens, or where one of the places that it happens, that it's been used as a tourist um, attraction. So my last one, probably the most, um, yep, the giraffe. The classy, lovely, elegant giraffe. Mm-hmm. So males will nudge a female's bum until she urinates. And then he will take a mouthful of that urine and determine if it tastes good. Basically, if she's in oestrus and so if she's in heat. And if she is, he will follow her and not give up and just keep bugging her until she does give up and has sex with him. Right. So if that is...
1: They really stick their neck out for that.
2: (laughs) Um, They actually like fight other males with their necks. It's just silly. (laughs) Those are actually also funny videos to watch if you come across them. Um, Yeah. So, anyways, those are just a couple of uh, examples of what work what works out there in the animal kingdom. So. If you feel like you've run out of all options, maybe, maybe you not, should...
0: Pro- probably not the best advice for the rest of us, <laughs> but interesting nonetheless.
2: Uh, hey, if you need to brush up on some, te- some technique, those are just some examples if you f- so feel the need. So I've just got back from
0: Kakadu National Park. Um, yeah, it's an amazing place from a scientific perspective, mm-hmm. environmental and a cultural point mm-hmm. of view. But there was a certain animal there that was very visible and very unwelcome in the park. Bufo dum, dum, dum. marinus. Ooh. The cane toad. <sighs> yeah. Probably the most hated animal in Australia. I don't know. What do you think?
1: Well, the, um, the common minor or the Indian minor has been voted as one of the it most hated It has quite pests.
0: a following of haters, it? does it? have a lot of haters, yep. yeah. It I think like maybe mosquitoes you can divide us. Str- hated. Oh, Mosquitoes? Yeah, that's true as well. But I think
2: that's common anywhere. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But there's just something about the cane toad that sort of just produces a vitriolic hate among Australians, Mm. especially Queenslanders, Northern Territorians, who have to put up with the cane toad. Mm -hmm. And this hate is with good reason. They're extremely poisonous if eaten in any of their life stages as tadpoles, toadlets or adults. In Kakadu, this is really bad. News for the animals mm-hmm. being small. In fact, a ranger mentioned to me that if a juvenile crocodile, say about like two meters long, eats a cane toad, the chances are that it's gonna like it's gonna die. Ninety-five percent in ninety-five percent. Well, one cane toad. Yeah,
1: two meters might be a juvenile crocodile. That's that's pretty big, really. It's pretty big. That sounds big. It
0: is. It is. It's not the biggest crocodile out there. No, but it's a well-established crocodile. Yeah. One cane toad. That's wow. how poisonous they are, hmm. and. Cane toads outcompete native frogs for food and mm-hmm. resources. They can carry diseases infecting local frog populations as well. Yeah, you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more loathed animal.
1: Do they have any redeeming features?
0: Um, not to my knowledge. <laughs> now, most people know how they were released. In mm-hmm. They were released into the Australian ecosystem as biological control for sugar cane beetles. It wasn't actually the adult beetle that they were supposed to be controlling, but up to 15 different beetle larvae. So these beetle larvae burrow into the roots of the cane sugar and destroy the plants. Mm -hmm. They ruin crops, destroying livelihoods and the industry, the sugar cane industry in general. Now, in the early 20th century, the chemicals that were available to combat the beetles were pretty nasty. They stayed in the environment for a long time, so scientists started looking for biological controls Mm -hmm. instead of using these chemicals. Their, I guess, idea was to find something that was going to be less destructive. Enter the cane toad. Mm. Can you see the irony here? Did
1: they do a lot of testing beforehand?
0: No, they did not do a lot of testing at all. A man named Reginald Montgomery was convinced that the cane toad was a solution to the problem. In 1935, he transported about 100 cane toads from Hawaii, where they had been introduced, but originally they're from South America, to Gordon Vale, Queensland, mm-hmm. which I think is in the north of Queensland. Is that right?
1: Something like that.
0: Yep. And there they were bred um, until their numbers reached about 2,500, and they were released into the wild after that. About 2,500 were released right, into okay. the wild from a stock of 100 cane toads. And in less than two months, the number of toads had increased 24-fold from the original 100.
1: So Reginald's probably feeling quite happy. Thought Big success. Reginald's
0: feeling happy, yeah. I mean, when you think about it, every female can lay a clutch of 30,000 eggs in one go. So that's why it doesn't take long to reach 24-fold times the amount that you had to right. begin with. God, Yeah, it's crazy, but... Before you start blaming Reg, just remember he was not alone in thinking this was a good idea. It was backed by supposed peer-reviewed journals, Australia's peak scientific bodies, the federal government and the Queensland state government, who Mm -hmm. he worked for this decision. But there were a couple of conscientious objectors to the idea. A man named Roy Kinghorn was one of them, a naturalist from the Australian Museum and another man who was a New South Wales government entomologist or studier of insects, as yep. you will. Um, and his name was, wait for it, Walter Froggett. <laughs> so he was
1: biased. He was clearly on the side of the other frog.
0: <laughs> he was on the side of the frogs. Froggett. Yeah. Yep, yeah, okay. absolutely. He said he was an entomologist, but really he was on the frog side. Right, right. Yeah, Froggit, for one, had a lot of experience as an entomologist. Mm-hmm. He'd worked with pest species around the Pacific Islands and Solomons and also in Vanuatu. And he was also a science communicator and a regular contributor to the Sydney Morning Herald. Okay. Oh. So he published his thoughts on the cane toad, saying, this great toad, immune from enemies, omnivorous in its habits and breeding all year round, may become as great a pest as the rabbit or cactus. Wow. Mm. Was it a
2: biological control in Hawaii? And it was a
0: biological control in Hawaii and I think Puerto Rico as well. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So looking back on the scientific literature, like you said, Chris, earlier, there wasn't any evidence of pre-release testing to show if the cane toads even ate the beetles or the larvae. Mm -hmm. They didn't do any testing before they released, which is obviously a huge issue. As the beetles were an Australian native species, unlike the ones in Hawaii. Oh. Yeah. So there were different species of beetles that, there were, right. that they sure were. I'm sure I've at.
1: seen cane toads eating cane beetles, though.
0: That sounds like some qualitative evidence.
1: I've seen them at the back of, out in, you know, the backyard kind of thing. I'm, I'm confident <laughs> I've seen that happening. I don't have, yeah, the exact yeah. peer reviewed evidence of that, but.
2: But it. it just because they do it doesn't mean that it's enough to control no, that's true. it. And yeah. then now that they've kind of become unruly, yeah. and they're probably
1: eating a lot of other things as well. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. They're omnivorous, so they eat, they eat everything. Yeah. 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 And yeah, there was no risk assessment done to look at the potential damage that these animals would cause due to the effects of their poison. Mm-hmm. So even if they were eating all of the cane beetle larvae, maybe the the fact that they were poisonous was were going to outweigh that. That potential benefit. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. So that was 1935. It wasn't until 1975, 40 years later, that the first survey on the impact of cane toads was published. And then CSIRO started studying the effects of cane toads 20 years after that. So yeah, it's only been quite recently that we have started to study the effects that cane toads have had on the ecosystem.
2: How soon did it like, did the population grow 24 fold? Was that, that was right in away? two months. Oh, right.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yep. Yeah. So it's been 80 years since the introduction of cane toads. And next week, I'm going to talk a little bit more about what we know you know, the 2015 state of affairs of the cane toad. Wow.
1: What so, we can do about it?
0: And what we can do about it. Great. Yeah. Is there
2: anything? Is there? Is that a hopeful.
0: I hope you can um, tune in next week. <laughs>
1: Hey, okay. yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris. And let me ask you, have you heard of Helen Quinn? Um, no. She, she's,
0: she's not the medicine woman.
1: No, she's not the medicine woman. Look, I'm gonna I'm just going to jump right in and, and and explain who she is. Helen Quinn is an important theoretical physicist who came from Melbourne and has now made it big overseas. Oh, um, Helen. She's not really well known because a lot of her work is kind of out on the edges of our current knowledge of theory and particle physics. But some of the stuff she's done... You know, it's it's fairly it's fairly well accepted things. Um people are testing, it may explain dark matter. If it's proven to be right, we're talking should we should be we pretty well known it when it's when her particles and stuff are discovered. So just, just, you heard it first here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah So yeah, so Helen Quinn is, like I said, she's a theoretical particle physicist. She was born in Melbourne in 1943, but did most of her work in the United States. She moved there in 1962 with her family, but she'd already been studying at Melbourne University. And now I should point out, this was actually a difficult time for, for women in physics. And not that it's great for women in physics now, we're kind of still facing a lot of gender imbalance. So I think you're looking at normally between 10 to 20% still, of, of physicists are of women. So it's, the numbers are fairly low. But at the time, there were fewer than 2% of physicists were women. And in fact, um, to give an example, when Helen Quinn was studying at the University of Melbourne, she had a cadetship from the Bureau of Meteorology, and that's kind of what was paying for her, her studies. And one of the conditions of that was that when she graduated, she had to work for them, and she wasn't allowed to get married for three years because the Australian government at the time did not employ married women. So... This is kind of the, the really overt discrimination that they used to have in those days. So yeah, not good, but fortunately she left the country, didn't have to deal with that. She went to America. She went to. Um, the family moved to California because her father had a job there, and she shopped around at the different universities to see which one would give her the best credit for her course. And she found Stanford University was the one to to go with, and which was good because Stanford University was a good place to be studying particle physics, which is what she did.
0: Why was it a good place to be studying particle physics? There was
1: a lot of research being done there. A lot of a lot of good people, a lot of smart people. They were building their own accelerator, the Stanford Linear Accelerator. Mm. Um, would that have right been one center, of the
0: one of the first? accelerators being uh, built over there? Or? It
1: wasn't one of the first ones being built. There were some other ones that were, that pre, were pre-existing it was kind of being built while she was studying there doing mm. her PhD. Cool. But yeah, it was sort of a happening place. And at the mm. time, Yeah, this was in the 50s and 60s, they were discovering a whole lot of new subatomic particles. So the subatomic particles I mean are the ones that are as the name suggests, smaller than an atom. So you know you have your protons and neutrons and electrons and those sort of things. They were finding a whole lot of other ones that they were basically making in these particle accelerators. There was Pretty much, I think over 150 of them, and they called it the Particle Zoo because yeah, no one knew what it was. It was yeah, it was was pretty crazy times for the experimentalists, and the theorists Mm. then had to kind of figure out how it all how it all worked. So yeah, Helen Quinn, uh, well Helen Arnold was her her surname originally until she married Daniel Quinn, who was another physicist. They got married in 1966. They were both PhD students together. He was an experimentalist which apparently is fairly rare for theorists and experimentalists to mix to that extent. <laughs> there was sound a sound like
2: a match made in heaven.
1: It, you might think it is, but they tend to operate fairly separately. So the, you know, the, the theoretical physicists, in, especially in particle physics, they kind of go off on their own and they sit in rooms and they write on blackboards and they do all this kind of work with equations. Whereas the experimental physicists, they work in big teams on big machines. And yeah, they don't, they don't necessarily deal with each other a lot.
2: opposites attract.
1: Well, um, there is a there was actually a book that was published in well, it's a while ago now, 1998, by um, a woman called Sharon Troweek, and she was an anthropologist who um, decided to study the high energy physics community to look at the anthropology of a professional community in um you know, in
0: Western civilization. And physicists specifically, yeah.
2: So, like physicists' courtship displays. Well, yeah, she did kind
1: of look at a bit of that, yeah. And <laughs> what she found was that they, the experimentalists and the theorists, didn't have high pins to each other, and they tended not to. Well, they, they voiced, they didn't voice high pins. They didn't. They learnt rituals of, of putting each other down, and they didn't mix too much. And she's, hmm. she's very rare for a theorist and experimentalist to get married was um, quite an unusual thing. Oh, so, yeah. It's
0: a Romeo and Juliet story
1: It is, from other the sides of the tracks yeah. So they, when they graduated, they moved They both got jobs in Germany at uh, a synchrotron over there So they moved there for a couple of years Until basically Daniel Quinn got another job back in the United States He basically was getting out of physics He had a job, a job offer in Massachusetts And so Helen moved back with him And she was left without a job for a while um, which was not a great situation to be in, I guess. So she kind of looked around what she was doing. She contemplated doing teaching. She kind of had a bit of a interest in in, teach, in educating the young, which was, you know, was a good, good, worthy thing. But then she tried it out and she decided she didn't really like all the stuff like detention hall and the dinner queue and that sort of thing and having to look, do all the bad stuff with teaching. So she's sort of thinking, how do I get back into physics? And she happened to run into a colleague from Germany who offered her a desk at Harvard University. Not a job, just a desk. Oh. But it tended to be a good thing. Again, it was quite fortunate because it was, again, a happening place. There was a lot of the people who were working on the theory about quarks, which is like what we now know things like protons and neutrons are made of. They were working there at, um, at Harvard University. It was, they were right on the cutting edge. And so she did some of her work there with um, some of the people she met, things like grand unified theories, which are the kind of bringing all the fundamental forces together and say that they're one force combined. Uh, she did some of the early calculations on that. And things were going well until her husband got another job in California. Daniel. <sighs> yeah, so she had, she had worked her way up. She was associate professor at Harvard, but she had to leave her job there and go back to being a postdoc at Stanford University. Sounds bad, I know. but again, Sounds a
0: bit unfair.
1: Again, things worked out okay. We're, Don't look bad. Mm. She met another physicist in Stanford, an Italian called Roberto Pecce, and together they came up with a, a new theory, which is now what they're both famous for, which is basically, I won't go into what it is because it's very, very complicated, but it's essentially about why the strong nuclear force, which is the strongest of the fundamental forces, and it holds nuclei together, as you can imagine from the name of strong nuclear force, it treats matter and antimatter the same. And this was a bit of a mystery, and they came up with an explanation for why it is Ooh. yeah and this involves a new field that they made up and it involves a new particle which is called the axion and the axion if it exists if their theory is right may be the particle that is responsible for dark matter and oh so wow it could end up being a very big important a very thing. big important thing wow. yeah
0: and is daniel quinn working on a way to experimentally test he's out of, he got out
1: of physics so i'm not sure what he's doing now his wife is time. a lot more famous I, let's just say that
0: yeah, so things have
1: worked out well. And, and she's gone the great strength. She won a lot of prizes, of course, for her work. Well, um, she wow. was president of the American Physical Society, which wow. is like the top club of physicists. Club. <laughs> club. <laughs> um, in the United States. Um, she's done a lot of work for helping other women in physics. She's wow. done work on physics education. In fact, she was instrumental in the new National Science Standards in the United States, so yeah, she's she's gone on to great things, and as a result, has yeah has had a lot of impact. One of the like I said, one of the most influential physicists to ever be born in Melbourne. So I think that's um, it's a pretty thing. It's something to be proud of. And Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So and especially if her theory does get proven right and turns out to be dark matter, well then, yeah, there's going to be partying in the streets. In yes. The so someone to Quinn keep. Day. Quinn Day. It's a name to remember if you go to ScienceWorks here in Melbourne, there is a room there named after her, the Helen R. Quinn Energy Lab. So go and check it out and you know, pay your pay your respects to Helen Quinn. And that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. We have learnt a lot. We've learnt about Helen Quinn, one of Australia's greatest physicists, this I think we can say. extraordinary. Yes. We have learnt about cane toads with more to come next week of part two of Claire's adventure into the, the top end of... Canto Control
0: Yeah Buffo Marinus
1: Stay tuned Yeah watch out And Manisha's Wonderful um,
2: How to guide
1: Mating tips (laughs) For the animal kingdom Maybe we'll get more Of that at some point As well I'm sure there are Many more species To cover Oh I can bring
2: More to you Oh good. We, we would word, enjoy that, I yes.
1: Yes. Meanwhile, Lost in Science, it is recorded at the studios of 3CR and Melbourne. It airs across Australia on the community radio Network with the generous support of the CUNY Broadcasting Foundation. You can get in touch with us if you want. We'd love that. We can find us on um, Facebook. We're also on Twitter. We have an email address that is lostinsci at gmail.com. Or we are, of course, on the radio. Where same time next week you can listen to Stu, Claire, Manisha, and Chris getting
2: Lost In Science.
0: Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.